You are listening to the You Are a Lawyer podcast. I am the podcast host, Kyla Denanyo, a 2015 law school graduate. This podcast was created to share the experiences and successes of law school graduates who created their own paths to career success. In episode 19, I am speaking with a clothing designer and lawyer. This guest created a clothing line that celebrates Asian culture and believes that immigration law is the new civil rights fight. Based in South San Francisco, California, today's guest is Robert Oi. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Well, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? So my name is Robert Oi. I am an attorney uh, who's been practicing since 2006 in the San Francisco Bay Area. I currently practice immigration and family law. I tend to split my time between the two. For immigration, I'm a generalist and I do everything from the VAWAs, U visas, to labor certifications, H-1Bs, and removal defense. And for family law, I do primarily, you know, I do divorces, child custody, restraining orders, property division, uh, the whole gamut. I also am the CEO and head designer of Pandemic, which is a clothing business that's tied very much to e-commerce, but is very much focused on social justice and very much focused on helping promote the API community and other minority and other underserved communities. And I also am the chair of the Parks and Recs Commission of South San Francisco. And I'm also the president of the Lowen Soccer Club which is the youth soccer club that plays competitive soccer in Northern California. And basically, you know, I've been running that and there's about 350 kids who are in that club. Great. And I also coach soccer. So I coach a couple of uh, soccer teams. Yeah. Okay. So is your day filled with a lot of meetings, a lot of memo drafting? What's typically on your schedule when you're working in immigration or the family law? It's really different every day. I mean, sometimes I have trial, sometimes I just have hearings or immigration interviews. So, you know, a typical morning will be getting up and either going to court or immigration or going to my office. If I'm going to my office, then basically, you know, it's mostly answering emails. I'm a person who doesn't believe in procrastinating. Basically, every single hour of every day is already scheduled for me for the most part, and I on my calendar. And then at the same time, I already schedule what as soon as I get in, which has additional work that needs to be done based on whatever emails I've received or any documents I receive in the morning, I complete them right away. I start sending all my phone calls, my emails, try to complete as many of them as possible so I can reserve the rest of the day for whatever else is on my calendar. Typically, you know, I will have client meetings throughout the day, either by phone or Zoom or in person for some people, especially if they're monolingual or have difficulty, you know, understanding some of the things that I'm talking about. And basically, you know, I meet with those clients, I do the work, and then also whatever else is scheduled, I just do that. So sometimes it might be drafting. I draft a lot of research memos for criminal immigration. Sometimes I have to do research for my employment-based immigration, or sometimes I'm drafting discovery, propounding discovery, or I'm preparing, you know, for trial. So there's always something going on. Uh, and that's typically my day until around 
somewhere from four to five. And depending on what day it is, I end up working on different things after that. Okay. So you were initially interested in civil rights law. How did you Mm -hmm. transition into immigration and family law? So I really believe that immigration law is modern day civil rights law. And to a certain extent, the family law that I do, because I focus so much on domestic violence, that also deals with gender equity issues. My parents are immigrants. My mother came here, had me as a baby, flew back to the Philippines. And a couple of years later, we escaped from the Philippines to the United States uh, to escape martial law. Uh, I was the only citizen in my family for a long time, and my family struggled with immigration. Over time, I mean, they did have some status. Uh, they were able to stay here for a while. But because there were family issues, my parents didn't always get along. And eventually my parents divorced. My mother had extreme difficulty with her immigration. And that really, really gave me a look inside the need to change things for immigration. While I grew up in an immigrant community, I eventually went to a high school uh, in the Bay Area that wasn't as diverse. And then I started facing racism. And I had a lot of uh, incidents there where actually for a whole year, I had these two kids who basically would spit on me, call me gook, chink, and make jokes about Asian people for a whole year until eventually one of them, um, you know, I spit back. He eventually, he spit on me, started swearing in front of the teacher. The teacher finally heard, and the teacher saw him push me down. You know, he had gotten in trouble, but in the end, you know, I didn't have the kid expelled. I thought it would be better to have some sort of restorative justice for the kid. And, you know, I talked with him. We talked it through and worked it out. So then he never did it again. The other kid never did it again as well. But that colored my experience about racism. Mm -hmm. Even when I went to undergrad, I still remember getting egged by some frat boys at UCLA uh, who called me a freaking gook and egged me and my friend uh, while we were walking down the street. And I kept thinking, you know, no matter what great school I come from, no matter how well I do, there's always going to be this specter. Uh, of racism, and I need to be an agent to fight it. So I started taking Asian American studies classes. I had switched from being a bio major to being Asian American studies and history. Took this great class on Asian Americans and the law. There was Stuart Kuo and Kent Wong who taught the class. I eventually worked as an intern at Stuart Kuo's Asian Pacific American Legal Center that later became the Asian American Justice Center. And then from there, I, I did research in DC on hate crimes and worked at NEPALSI, National Asian Pacific American Legal Consortium, which is also now AAGC DC. And then from there, I realized, well, I want to go to law school. So my father, who is a lawyer, who didn't necessarily want to be a lawyer, did talk with me about it, but he eventually said, if I want to go, he'd support me. So I went to law school. And initially, my first couple of jobs there were at civil rights organizations. And then when I graduated, I ended up deciding between being a public defender or I could work as a staff attorney at the Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach doing immigration and domestic violence work. And I ended up choosing to do the immigration domestic violence work to help people of color stay in the United States and to get out of bad situations and to find a way to live in the U.S. And I've done a lot of human trafficking cases because of that work, a lot of cases for asylum and other people who've been victimized and who really suffer. And I eventually transitioned from there to do what I do now into in the private sector. Okay. Yeah. And AAJC is the Asian American Justice Center? Yes. Asian American Justice Center. Yeah. Uh, It's, I believe it's the largest consortium of 
Asian American legal nonprofit. And sorry to hear about all that in high school. I'm glad you showed empathy to that kid and didn't have him expelled. Did you find your empathy to be an asset when you were in law school? Um, surprisingly, yes. Although sometimes it would not work out well. Okay. Being empathetic to other law students sometimes would cause problems because they would try to take advantage of me for notes or other things like that. Yeah, they probably thought it was uh, weakness. Um, but I find that empathy as a lawyer is actually quite important. I believe strongly in being empathetic to clients, and I believe strongly in also civility in our practice. I've always believed that when you're doing your work, you have to do it professionally and treat people well. And at the same time, you can be a strong advocate, but you don't have to be a jerk while you're doing it. <laughs> um, you can get your point across without trying to ruin a person's life. You can win and you can help make things better in society. And I think that's kind of my viewpoint on things. Yeah, which is pretty incredible because it sounds like those kids wanted to take that optimism away from you. So it's great that you- Oh yeah, they, they totally wanted to destroy it. It traumatized me for years and- to this day, I mean, it's still very vivid in my mind that I was treated that way. I do have to say in some ways, it's colored my experience and colored the way I eventually work in the fields that I do. Mm -hmm. Because every day I work for people who are struggling, who are suffering, who are fighting. Because either in another country, some gang members might be trying to kill them, or they may have come here and then they were promised to do one job, but instead they're forced into forced labor or, you know, they're in a bad marriage, you know, or even for my employment immigration stuff. I mean, I'm helping people who have done everything in their lives to get ahead. And at every step, the U.S. government puts obstacles in front of them, even though they've done everything right, you know, and I, I like that fight. I like the fight for that little guy to kind of try to help them succeed, help them win. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm still thinking about that line that you said, immigration law is the new civil rights. And it, it rings really true. So, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you said that you came from a long line of professionals. Your mother was an ophthalmologist. Your father is a lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. Your grandfather was a doctor. Your grandmother was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Did your father want you to become an attorney? So my parents wanted me to be either a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer. They always told me that it was required for me growing up since I was a little kid that I was going to be one of those things okay. and I could do whatever I wanted afterwards. Hmm. They were disappointed that I did not become a doctor. I did enter UCLA as a biology major. I was pre-med because I was kind of sheltered and also I lacked the drive at that time. I eventually dropped out of that major. Frankly, I almost got kicked out of school. I ended up doing really badly because I gone to an all boys Catholic school, very sheltered, never really went out, never lived by myself, had no life skills. And I basically partied and I one point got a 1.0 GPA. Wow. And um, oh my goodness. the school told me that I would be dismissed the next quarter unless I was able to fix it. And I went ahead and fixed it by switching majors. Mm -hmm. And I was able to, to switch my major and get straight A's or as close to straight A's uh, for the rest of the time I was there. My parents kept asking, what are you gonna do with that major? History and Asian American studies. Like your double major seems kind of not useful, right? Yeah. And I basically told them, well, you know, I wanna become a professor 
And then they're like, no, why would you become, if you <laughs> become a professor, like you're just gonna be broke, you know? But, and then my dad was just like, well, if you go to law school, you know, I'll pay for it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll okay. go to law school. But he, but then he was, at the same time, he was still like, are you sure you want to go to law school though? Yeah, you um, said your father didn't enjoy it. Oh yeah, yeah. He yeah. only practiced for about five years before doing something else. But when I graduated from law school, he said it was one of the proudest days of his life. And, you know, I was happy about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like he supported it, <laughs> even though he's not like, you know, don't learn from my example, but if that's what you want to do. Yeah, it was kind of like, so in my family, they always felt that being a professional was important because as my father always told me, education was something that no one could ever take away from you. And my mother really believed that too. I mean, she she was with me every single step up until college, helping me with my homework every day and making sure I got as high of a GPA as possible. Did everything to make sure that I got where I needed to be. They told me the whole time growing up, you need to aim high and you need to be something. Mm -hmm. And you can choose to do other things once you're a lawyer. You may not like being a lawyer. You may not like being a doctor or engineer. But once you're, you have those things, you'll be able to do all these other things, which is true. It is, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Why did you choose to take that Asian American Studies course? Was it an elective? Um, yeah, it was an elective. I was just taking it. I was looking for stuff that I'd get like an easy A in. Okay. And then it ended up being so life-changing. I ended up taking the course and I was like, wow, wait, these Asians are fighting for our rights here. They're, and, you know, I learned about Vincent Chen, you know, Asian American who was killed in a hate crime. I, I learned about the El Monte um, human trafficking case. And I was like, this is something I want to work on. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting my internship at the Asian Pacific American Legal Center through a program uh, through Asian American Studies called the Asian Pacific American Legal Leadership Development Program. And when I was there, there were a bunch of kids who were, you know, kind of like me, just learning about activism, learning about social justice. We weren't necessarily all into social justice. I mean, you know, at the time, I was actually very conservative. It opened our eyes that we could actually make positive change in our community. And it wasn't just about money or just, you know, getting that great job, but we could actually do things that would make impact on people's lives. And I still remember, I know it's so trite, everyone always talks about that, um, that Gandhi quote, like be the change or alleged Gandhi <laughs> quote, uh, be the change you wish to see in the world. But that was one of the things that the, that the main guy there, Sefa Aina, the main uh, um, teacher taught was, yeah, be that change you can be that change. And for someone like me who'd had his voice taken away, you know, gotten treated so badly by people who were being racist and, you know, it was hurting, yeah. like emotionally, you know, it was so powerful. And I just, I, I just remember saying that I was like, yeah, I can do this. I can help make some people's lives better. And that's, you know, what I tried to do. So was the course an easy A or did you get an A because you became so passionate about it? Um, you know, I don't know if it was an easy A, but <laughs> I'd say that it did make me passionate about it. And yeah. it's far easier to get an A in things if you care. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you are incredibly accomplished. Most recently, you were the Super Lawyer Rising Star from 2014 through 2020. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about what you said about your family. They just wanted you to be a lawyer, doctor, or accountant, then you can do whatever else. 
Yeah. Is that why you decided to start your clothing company, Pandemic Now? Basically, I was kind of thinking of that. The reason I started it was years ago, because of what I was doing, the type of work I was doing, and I'm dealing with uh, victims and survivors all the time. I'm dealing with people who are in very, very bad marriages, or I'm dealing with stressed out, you know, people who are immigrating to the United States or, you know, just trying to survive here. And frankly, I was a bit traumatized. And I started doodling. I had gotten my first iPad. I started doodling and I kept drawing. And I just kept doing it every time I was nervous, whenever I was anxious, scared, upset. And eventually I came up with all these designs and I put them up on a website and I was invited to start doing art shows. The thing is growing up, my mother was an artist. I have a lot of family members who are artists, but I was terrible at it. And I'd been told that I was terrible at art. Uh, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try it. So I ended up doing some art shows, sold a couple of things, didn't really make much money out of it. I love it though. I loved it. And I, I kept drawing. And in fact, I probably have thousands of digital paintings. I have some acrylic paintings at home, but mostly digital. And I was trying to figure out like, what would I do with it? I have this month, you know, when everything shut down yeah. and I want people to buy my stuff. I want people to wear my things, like, or at least like not wear necessarily, but have them. I want, mm -hmm. how can I distribute? And I, I decided, well, let me look up. I've been looking up e-commerce and I said, oh, you know what? I can sell my, my clothes on the internet. I can sell my designs on clothes on the internet. And I thought at first it was really, really kind of a bad idea, but I figured, hey, why not? What's the worst thing that could happen? And I started selling my clothes on the internet and people started buying it. I started with masks, uh, although I de-emphasized masks because I think that's saturated. Yeah. And one of the things that I had with it was focusing on, you know, being very pro-social justice, but also, you know, very much focused on API issues and incorporating you know, other themes like street art and pop art, because those are the things that I like. And that's basically what it is. It's a clothing line that's very social justice oriented, but that reflects the Asian American and minority experience, but at the same time does it by using a lot of pop art motifs and street art motifs. And that's yeah. kind of what I, I work with. And it's fun. I love it. You know, I, I work with a couple of nonprofits where I end up designing their clothes and I donate a portion of it to them. Okay. And where can people find your clothing? Where can they find the pandemic line? Oh, so they can just go to www.pandemic, P-A-N-D-A-M-I-C.net. So mm -hmm. pandemic.net. And we're also on Instagram at pandemic clothing and that's panda and then M-I-C. <laughs> so this is just a full-fledged business now? You don't see uh, an endpoint in sight? Uh, I don't think it, there needs to be an endpoint necessarily. I have to say it's self-sustaining, which is mm -hmm. better than most, uh, most startups, yeah. which are negative. I've represented tons of startups and most of them are <laughs> negative constantly. This is something that pays for itself for the most part. And Good. it's something that I see that can grow over time, but it gives me a voice. It gives me the ability to, you know, put out my art, 
put out my designs and help the local nonprofits and local organizations, you know, have their swag and merchandise. But at the same time, I can, you know, put forth ideas I really think about. So for example, I have this one shirt where it's a panda basically flipping off the world. And his tagline is typically give the finger to hate. And with that tagline, it's really, that's kind of how I feel. You know, we're silenced. Minorities, people of color, a lot of times there's so many people out there who are telling us to shut up, who talk over us, who tell mm-hmm. us that we aren't worthy. We Our opinions are not, are not valid. And for me, I, you know, through my little panda shirt, I can wear that and say, I'm giving the finger to hate, I'm giving the finger to you. I don't care, you know, because in the end, I have a voice. And at the same time, I have other shirts to say funny things like what's called no more humble Asian shit. And um, <laughs> one of the California Supreme Court justices, Goodwin Liu, once gave a speech about no more humble Asian shit. And he was basically telling other APIs that everyone expects you to be a certain way. Because the stereotype of Asian Americans is we're good middle managers who sit down, shut up, do good work, but never ask for more. We never tell people who we are, how good we are, how successful we are, how we are the best. And that's why we are held back. And instead, what we should do, not do that humble Asian shit anymore and just say, look, I take ownership of what I do, of my skills and my ability. Right. And and that's kind of the, the thing. And that I'm awesome. frankly awesome and the best. And I think like that's something that we need to do as people of color is to go out there and have that voice and just be like, look, you know, all these other guys come up here, they have intrinsic confidence because, you know, their parents own, you know, Porsche 911s and they have the country club memberships where they hobnob with the rich. They have all this confidence because they have the money, they have the background, and maybe they even have a trust fund. We don't necessarily have that. What we have, though, is the ability to work hard, fight for what we want. And we should have that same confidence because you know what? When you've had to fight for everything, it's worth so much more. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned representing startups. Do you find Mm -hmm. that your law degree was a great foundation for you creating this business and running your clothing line? Mm, Not really. I mean, uh, I find that... You know, my wife established my law firm mm-hmm. and I think observing her and what she does every day, you know, cause she runs a lot of the management for our law firm that helped me more. Okay. And then at the same time, my family, we are all business people. Okay. It's one of those things where I see that and I kind of take from that. And I, I surround myself with people who do business. I'm one of those people who believes that while we should do as much for social justice, that also social justice requires us to be representative in almost every aspect of society that we need to excel and help others excel in every part of it, including the financial field. Okay. So I have two more questions here. Do you still sketch when you're anxious? Yeah, I do. I mean, I still, you know, I have a lot of hobbies. I I do a lot of things just to keep me sane. It's Mm -hmm. usually either, you know, drawing, designing, sketching, painting or like I'll play piano or something. I mean, I'm always doing something. Coaching Um, soccer. (laughs) And is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I think that for people who are interested in the law, the law is a great tool. While it sometimes may be a harsh mistress, it is something that is very difficult to deal with and it's extremely stressful. It awards you with certain things, capacity to analyze, to be analytical, 
gives you legitimacy. It also gives you the ability to speak well, the ability to do research well, and the ability to be in contact with very successful people and, yeah. and to kind of make changes and waves. And I think that one of my mentors had always told me, and th this is from Judge Victor Huang, you know, being a lawyer, you're failing if you're in your office all day. Mm -hmm. And what he meant was that in order to be a successful lawyer, you need to be out there in your community. You need to be out there doing things to affect change, to helping society, because that's how you can be a fulfilled attorney. You can be someone, someone who's great. And I think that's kind of what I've taken is that I try not to just do my regular work. And yeah, my regular work is great. You know, I'm able to, to help people stay in the U.S., able to help people get in the U.S., you know, protect people from domestic violence or child abuse. That's great. But at the same time, there's this whole part of it. When you're a lawyer, you are able to engage in civic engagement. You're able to be out there in the community. You can be an advocate. You have the tools to go out there to speak to other people you have the tools to go out there and to be a voice for people who are not represented, for yeah. people who do not have that ability to, to go out there. And at the same time, you have some credibility. And that's why it makes it easier for lawyers to enter into public life, you know, into politics, to join commissions, to do all these other things. It's because, you know, you have those tools built in. So I do encourage people to go into law. But I do have to tell them it's difficult. It is hard. It is a battle. You know, sometimes you're working, you know, 12 hours a day, multi, you know, six, seven days a week. When you're in law school, it's garbage, frankly. I mean, <laughs> I still remember studying every day, you know, like all day long from like 9 a.m. till 9. I would like if I wasn't eating or sleeping, I was studying, you know, yeah. but I think that it's worth it for people in the end, because in the end, you have so much ability to do so much good. And I would hope that anyone who becomes a lawyer remembers that and takes that and uses it in whatever field it is, may it be business, may it be in the nonprofit field, may it be in the law firm or in the political field, but you're given power. You're given that ability. You really can be that agent of change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Robert. Yeah. No problem. And thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed that conversation. So. Yeah, of course. You have thank a great you. evening. Thank you. Right, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. While you are here, subscribe to the show, leave a rating, and tell a friend about this episode. New episodes are released every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye. <laughs>